This is very strange, Jim. We're not used to being in a room full of people when we're having these conversations normally. No, and we usually have had... Am I on? Yes? Seems a little quiet. Yep. Uh, and we usually have headphones on as well, so that's yeah. a... Quite, quite a strange experience for us, but we'll yeah. try and get used to it. Um, in this final part of our series on the Bible, Free From Error, we're going to examine the claim that the Bible is riddled with contradictions. And that's what some people would claim, critics of the Bible. Um, how can Christians say the Bible is completely true when one passage seems to say something completely different to another passage? So that's really the kind of basis of our discussion today. Uh, we're also going to try and address a number of the questions that have been asked over the past few weeks in our conversation as well. Um, but before we get started and, and into the specifics, we're just going to develop a little bit of a structure, a bit of a framework for our session. So we're going to start by categorizing the different types of so-called contradictions into groups, different groups. And there are three basic groups of contradictions, and we'll think about that. Um, and as we go through each type of challenge to biblical truthfulness, we'll then draw out some principles about how to handle them. And then towards the end, we'll think about some of the questions that you guys have asked us. So, Jim, I guess the best place to start is to try and do that, to try and structure these criticisms or these challenges into basic groups. Um, could you outline those groups for us? I see you've redone my PowerPoint. <laughs> I may have done. I may have done. Yes. After I, I listened to last week and I heard, heard yes. you gave a little dig at me. So I, I was did, like, yeah, yeah. I was very well, offended. It's, it's suitably bleak, which is good. <laughs> um, so, look, there, I, I, I can't read that, but I, I think there are three uh, main types of challenge on, on the screen. And the first we might call textual contradictions, okay? So thinking here of straightforward claims made in one biblical passage that appear to be contradicted in another passage. So, for example, Mark, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that Simon of Cyrene carried the cross, while John's gospel tells us that the Lord Jesus carried his own cross. So that's an apparent textual contradiction, or it's a difference. Hmm. The second category um, is we might call conflicts with science and history. So here we're thinking about contradictions uh, between assertions made in the Bible and in the conclusions reached uh, at the moment by archaeologists and geologists and physicists. Okay? And in the third category, we might call, uh, will they relate to ethical problems or ethical inconsistencies? So are the ethics found in the Old Testament consistent with the ethics taught by the Lord Jesus and his apostles? What about the invasion of Canaan, uh, Canaan uh, for example, or... Um, even within the New Testament, you know, what, how does Paul's teaching about food offered to idols uh, um, work across the whole canon? You know, are there mixed messages being sent about that even in the New Testament? Okay. Yeah, brilliant. So, so we've got these three categories then, textual contradictions, conflicts with science, and then these kind of ethical problems or problems related to kind of ethical consistency. So we're going to start with, with kind of the main type of challenge, which is the claim that there are contradictions within the text itself. So does, I guess, just simply, is it true? Does the Bible contain contradictions within its text? Yeah. Well, have a look at the, at the graphic on the screen. Um, you can find that graphic on loads of popular atheist websites. Uh, so along the x-axis, you have all the 66 books of the Bible, um, uh, Old Testament and New Testament. And then each of those red curved lines is supposed to be a contradiction between one passage and another passage. So there are apparently contradictions within the Old Testament, within the New Testament, and across the whole sure. of the Bible. It's, it's quite faint on our screen here, but it's just a, essentially like a curved line. If you see on some of the screens at the sides, you can probably see it there. Right. Yeah, that's my one slide, by the way, that I did. Um, <laughs> so the, now, according to that graphic, there are over 400 contradictions within the text of the Bible itself. Um, uh, of course, uh, some people would argue there are even more, okay. So that 
can be pretty intimidating. That, that might unnerve a young believer. Uh, but we'll see there is absolutely nothing to worry about here. Um, so let me start off by conceding, of course, that the Bible contains a good number of differences uh, or apparent contradictions. Uh, if you read through the 66 books, especially the ones that cover similar historical events, uh, there will be times when you, you, you stop and think, hold on, um, in one book it says X, in another book it says Y, and X and Y don't seem to align completely. So there's a difference. But the first thing we have to say is that a difference is not the same thing as a literal factual contradiction. So you should never freak out when you encounter an apparent contradiction. When you gave a talk on this topic at some point in, in, the, blur, in, in yes. the long distant past, um, you went on a website called infidels.org, which sounds like a real thrill. And um, it's a well-known atheist website. And you basically copied and pasted a whole list of apparent contradictions. Um, and it's, this is like where secular thinkers will go and kind of copy and paste their list and share it with all their kind of atheist friends or whatever. Um, and we've put up uh, on the screen, or we're going to put up on the, on the screen, seven of those uh, top contradictions from infidels.org. Um, and, and this isn't kind of an easy hit list. This is kind of their, some of their big ones. And we're basically going to go through them one by one just quickly, yeah. Jim, if that's all right. So um, let's start with, with number one. Uh, did Jesus answer his accusers? The atheist website claims that Matthew says that Jesus said not a word, but that John shows him speaking to Pilate. Yeah. So as, as you say, this is not us just setting up you know, soft targets to hit here. These are genuine um, examples taken off of, of top uh, atheist websites. So did, did Jesus answer his accusers? Uh, well, in Matthew 27, 14, uh, we see Pilate marveling because the Lord Jesus refuses to defend himself when he's harangued by the religious rulers. But if you step back to verse 12, you will actually, in Matthew's account, you will hear Jesus talking to Pilate. So Matthew doesn't say that Jesus never spoke throughout his entire trial. Uh, he chose not to defend himself at a particular time when the Jewish rulers were um, haranguing him. And later on, of course, he chooses not to speak to Herod. But there isn't the slightest contradiction between John's account and Matthew's account, uh, because the Lord speaks at certain times. Okay, brilliant. Number two, what color was Jesus' robe? <laughs> in Matthew's account, the robe that the soldiers put on Jesus is described as scarlet, but in Mark and John, it's described as being purple. Isn't that a contradiction? I think this objection was raised by an, an interior designer. Um, if you consult the archaeologists on this point, you'll find a particular shellfish. It's a mussel which is apparently, you know, grows uh, found along the Mediterranean coast. And it was used to create a dye in the ancient world. And the color is described by the experts as a reddish-purple color. Okay? you also got to remember that the cloak would probably have been stained and old. Um, so I would argue that the difference of perspective is evidence of eyewitness testimony. I mean... What are the atheist critics expecting here? I mean, a specific RGB color code, you know? Um, so I, again, I don't think there's a, a contradiction here at all. Cool, number three, um, and this is one uh, we've mentioned earlier, who carried the cross in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? We read it was Simon of Cyrene who carried the cross, but in John's gospel, we're told Jesus carried his own cross. Well, I, I think it's really interesting because you notice that in both accounts, they show incredible familiarity with Roman customs. Uh, it was a custom for a criminal to carry their own cross under, under Roman um, way of, of execution. But also, a Roman centurion had the right uh, to summon any Jew who happened to be passing by and command them to carry an object uh, for up to a mile. The Lord Jesus alludes to that in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we also know that the Lord Jesus had been severely beaten 
and uh, so much so that he died much sooner than, than people expected. So a reasonable harmonization would see Jesus carrying his own cross, but perhaps as the procession leaves the city gates, the Lord is so weakened that he stumbles. And at this point, the centurion orders a Jew coming in from the countryside with his family, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the cross. Now, I can't prove that events unfolded in exactly that way, but I don't need to. It is a completely plausible scenario, so it defeats the charge of an unreconcilable contradiction. Brilliant. Uh, number four, what was written about the cross? So according to Matthew, the inscription on the cross read, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. Um, and in Mark's record, uh, it, it said this, uh, sorry, it said the King of the Jews. And Luke records, this is the King of the Jews, while John says, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Those all seem slightly different. How would you explain that? Well, I think everybody in the room has probably already solved this. I mean, the full title was probably, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The first clause identifies the criminal, the second, the crime. And again, I see more evidence of eyewitness testimony here. I mean, John quotes the entire content of the inscription because he stood right under the cross. Uh, but other eyewitnesses might only have seen the crime statement, the King of the Jews. So the point for us is that there's no contradiction uh, between the accounts. Brilliant. We're, we're racing through these, um, but hopefully this is giving a sense of yeah. how to rebut some of these uh, apparent contradictions. Uh, so, so number five, um, where were the women during the crucifixion? So Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that a group of women were standing afar off, quite a distance from the cross. But in John's account, it appears the woman standing close to the cross, close enough to hear Je Jesus speak to his mother. Isn't that also a contradiction? Yeah. Um, the gospel writers are really specific when talking about these women. I mean, they're named. And in fact, there are two groups of women. Uh, the women from Galilee stand far off, and that's women like Salome and John's biological mother. Uh, but Mary, the mother of the Lord, and her sisters stand at the foot of the cross. And there's only one woman who's in both lists, and that's Mary Magdalene. But the crucial point here is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the position of the women at the exact moment of Jesus' death. John's interest in the women lies before the Lord dies. Um, uh, so I think it's plausible that Mary Magdalene had joined the Lord's mother to comfort her perhaps, but had left the scene and had rejoined the other women uh, when Christ died. Great, I know that, that makes sense. No, number six, uh, did one or both of the criminals revile Jesus? According to Matthew, both criminals insulted and reviled Jesus, but in Luke's account, it appears only one does. Yeah. Um, well, just how many sermons have been preached in this? I mean, obviously Luke tells the story of a conversion. Uh, the dying thief, as we know him, went to Golgotha as an unbeliever. Okay, he and his mate directed their anger and their pain onto Christ for a while. But three hours is a long time. An imminent death caused one of the criminals to think deeply about his life and about the man dying beside him. So he converts to faith in Christ. Again, there is no contradiction. In fact, I love these, con these uh, purported contradictions because when you actually think about them deeply, they give greater credibility to the assertion that the Bible, the gospel records in particular, are eyewitness accounts. Mm. So, uh, so one of the, the, these criminals got gloriously saved just before he died, and that is a psychologically compelling explanation. Yeah, this final um, criticism, Jim, or apparent contradiction is, is important because it concerns events yeah. surrounding the resurrection, and that's often kind of a, a popular area of attack for kind of critics, I guess. Bart Ehrman says the resurrection accounts contain uh, contradictions that can't be harmonized. Bart Ehrman would be one of the leading kind of critics in this area. So um, on contradiction seven, who visited the tomb first? Matthew tells us it was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Mark adds in the name of Salome. 
Luke lists out Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of Jesus, and another woman, and John says it was just Mary Magdalene. How do we explain that? Yeah, there's this Bible scholar called John Wenham, and he has written, uh, I think, a compelling harmonization of the accounts. Uh, His book is called The Easter Enigma. Uh, I mean, you have to remember that the garden of the tomb was very close to the city. Um, um, When you put all the pieces of the jigsaw together, you get this, uh, what I find anyway, an utterly authentic picture of confused people running back and forward from the city to the garden tomb. And there's also a lot of angelic activity, just as there was during the Lord's birth. But to answer your, your, your specific question, um, when I consider a scenario like this, uh, Mary of Bethany, uh, sorry, I beg your pardon, Mary, Mary Magdalene uh, had been staying in Bethany in, uh, uh, on the Saturday evening. That's a, this is my hypothesis, okay? So while it was still dark, uh, she and Clopas' wife walked to John's house in Jerusalem, and they pick up Salome there, and they use the, the Ganath Gate in Jerusalem to get to the garden. There's a fascinating little detail in Luke's account about the other woman called Joanna. We're told that she was wealthy. She and her friend Susanna could have been staying in the richer part of the city, uh, perhaps in the Hasmonean Palace itself, uh, given her husband's role. Uh, And if that was the case, then they would have used the Ephraim Gate to leave the city very early in the morning. And the two groups of women then could have arrived at much the same time. So that's just an example of how you can have a plausible harmonization uh, which defeats the, the, uh, the charge of contradiction. Brilliant. And, and so that's, we've kind of raced through the seven there, Jim, but, but is, is there any kind of principles that we can learn about how to tackle apparent contradictions? Yeah, I think there are two important principles which, yes, um, come up on the screen there. When it comes to textual contradictions, remember, first of all, others have encountered them before. So there are excellent resources available to help build up your confidence in the truthfulness of Scripture. So I'll just mention one there. It's on the screen. It's called The Big Book of of Bible Difficulties. It's written by Norman Geisler. uh, And he goes through 800 apparent contradictions. Um, So that's a book I would thoroughly recommend. Um, They're also now coming out a series of um, study Bibles which uh, are um, focused entirely on apparent contradictions. So that's another resource. So that's the first principle. Others have been here before. The second principle is all you need to defeat the charge of contradiction is a plausible harmonization. You don't need to prove that your harmonization is the scenario that actually unfolded in history. It's enough to show that it might be true. Okay, brilliant. brilliant. We have an opportunity to kind of test those principles now because one of the questions we got from, from you guys was on the death of Judas. Um, and, and there's two accounts of Judas's death. And one of those accounts tell us that Jesus hung himself, and in the other, we're told that he fell headlong, um, and his body split open. It's quite unpleasant to, to, to be talking about this on, on a Sunday morning. But, um, but yeah, so how, how do your principles apply to that scenario? Yeah. Well, two weeks ago, we were very privileged to have Dr. Peter Williams uh, come and speak to us. And I remember watching a Peter Williams debate with Bart Ehrman on, on a YouTube video, and I was watching it in my kitchen while making a supremely unhealthy meal. Uh, and at one point, Ehrman is challenged to give his best shot, okay, to deliver the knockout punch to biblical inerrancy, and he chose the story of Judas's death. And I remember spinning around from my aga, holding a fish slice in my hand. I wasn't being fish, that would have been okay, but anyway. And, and I remember shouting out, Judas, really? That's your best shot? Uh, because to understand the story of Judas' death, you need to appreciate two pieces of information. Uh, um, and the first is, oh, sorry, my technology meltdown here. 
Um, I have a, yeah. Excuse me one second here, folks. I just have the switches on and off. Reminds me of when Jim spoke at our wedding and it was raining and the rain was moving his tablet on through the pages. So he's getting increasingly stressed as he spoke at our wedding. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. Yeah. Um, uh, just, just while this is, is uh, this is definitely melted down here. Uh, sorry, it's just, it's doing, so what was I saying? I'll do this from so, there. So we were talking yeah. really about the Judas account and how to like harmonize those two yes. kind of seemingly contradictory accounts. Yeah. So, so there are two things you need to do. One is about the geography of the region uh, where Judas uh, hung himself, because he did hang himself, he committed suicide. Uh, and uh, the money that he had, the 30 pieces of silver was used to buy that plot of land, that became his inheritance. Uh, and the interesting piece of information about that part of the world is that it's not flat. Uh, it's lots of little ravines and valleys and so forth, and a lot of the trees grow uh, on the edges of the ravines. The second piece of information uh, relates to Luke's literary goals in writing Acts. And I'm afraid I do have to be grotesque here, uh, because he deliberately contrasts the horrific, grisly end of Judas uh, with the... Uh, beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus ascending into heaven. Okay, so that's, that's what he's doing. So the way, I see, the way you reconcile these, these apparent differences is that Judas hangs himself, but nobody buries him. He's left there hanging on a tree uh, to look at his inheritance, and eventually the body rots, and uh, the rope rots and it breaks, the body falls, and then it tips headlong down into one of these ravines, and uh, his, his bowels split out. Mm. So there's a nice thought for a Sunday morning. But it is an entirely plausible mm. uh, explanation. Yeah, totally. And yeah, it just seems quite disappointing that that was his, his kind of biggest shot. Um, if you're, uh, have you got your notes back there, Jim? We, yep. Okay, so let, let's just move on to, to kind of another, another question. Um, when, we, when we think of these textual contradictions, there are two important principles um, that, that we mentioned that were on the screen. Others have encountered these difficulties. You want the first Christian to see an apparent contradiction. And secondly, uh, all we need is plausible harmonization. We don't need to prove that our proposal actually happened yeah. in order to dismiss the charge of a contradiction. So let's move now to apparent contradictions between the Bible and science and history. This is another kind of significant area. Are there any other principles we can use with regard to these kind of contradictions? Yeah, remember that our belief uh, that the Bible is free from error isn't founded on having answered every possible 800 of those 800 charges. Okay, as followers of Christ, we treat Scripture as Christ treated Scripture. So, for a young believer, believing that the Bible is free from error begins as an act of obedience to Christ. Um, the mature believer has lots of other reasons, of course, uh, because he or she has discerned the divine author over years of study uh, behind the 40 human authors. So, in this series, we have been careful to define freedom from error as follows. When all the facts are known, the Bible, as originally given, will prove itself to be free from factual error. A 20-word definition. Now, that definition informs how we should handle conflicts with history and science. Not all the facts are in yet. So sometimes we just have to need to live with the tension. A great example of that comes from a character called Sargon II, uh, he was an Assyrian king. He's mentioned in Isaiah 20 and in Kings as well. And earlier critics claimed that the reference to Sargon was an error because there was absolutely no evidence that an Assyrian king called Sargon II ever existed until, that is, archaeologists digging in the region of Khorsabad 
unearthed the palace of one Sargon II. And we now have more information about Sargon than about any other ancient Assyrian king. Now, there are lots of other examples here. Until recently, we had no archaeological evidence of King David. We now do. Uh, a great deal of the history recorded in Kings and Chronicles has been validated in the last 150 years. But perhaps the most famous example I could cite here relates to Quirinius. Uh, we will meet Quirinius very soon in our study of Luke uh, because he's mentioned in the account of the Christmas story. Now, critics said for long, many, many decades that Luke was completely wrong. But some coins from the period have been unearthed, uh, literally, and they uh, show that Luke was correct. Quirinius actually served two terms as governor, so he didn't get his dates mixed up. Now, there are still big gaps in our knowledge, but in those cases, I just shrug my shoulders and wait for the facts to come in. No, they may never come in this side of eternity, of course. So okay. that's the first principle. Brilliant. So, so that's very helpful when it comes to kind of questions of history. What about the kind of questions of science, so particularly thinking now about those early chapters of Genesis? How, how does the Bible match up with, with science? Well, once again, we can, we can say that not all the facts are in yet. Uh, the current controversies center on genetic divergence. Uh, but although scientists have made astonishing progress uh, in our understanding of genetics, they would be the first to admit that we're really only scratching the surface. So we don't need to follow Francis Collins and all the biologos bio guys and embrace theistic evolution. Um, it seems to me a wiser approach is simply to reserve judgment, uh, because not all the facts are in yet. Now, when it comes to science, there is a second helpful principle. Um, I believe that the events recorded in Genesis 1 to 11 actually happened, but they can helpful, helpfully be regarded as a series of snapshots, if you like. In other words, there's a vast amount of complexity that we're told nothing about. Uh, so I think it's simply wrong, and I hope I don't offend you here, but I, I, I think it's simply wrong to take such a small set of data and use it to construct a scientific geological theory. Uh, we have to recognize that the author of Genesis leaves a lot of stuff out because he only includes material that's relevant to his purpose. So we don't know how old the earth is. I would argue we don't even know how old humanity is because the author, just like Matthew, uses stylized genealogies. So my suggested principle is never construct scientific theories from the Bible because the Bible tells us the truth but not the whole truth about physical reality. Now, living with that sort of unresolved tension can be uncomfortable. It might make you feel uh, uncomfortable, but take a step back and see what the evil one is doing here. Let's think about tactics for a moment. The early chapters of Genesis contain the most important truth claims that this culture needs to hear. If you think about every cultural war issue that we face, from abortion, transgenderism, human sexuality, even critical theory, behind every one of those uh, ideas is a rejection of Genesis 1 to 11. But with satanic cunning, the evil one has led the church into a cul-de-sac where we use that crucial part of scripture to argue over geology. Yeah, so it's, 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 yeah. it's really a, a massive distraction, is what you're yeah. saying from, so, from what is true. By living with unresolved tension between Scripture and certain fashionable scientific ideas, we can reclaim Genesis and handle that part of God's Word correctly. Brilliant. Brilliant. The, the third and final challenge that, that we've mentioned is these kind of inconsistent ethics or the, the allegation of inconsistent ethics within the Bible. So some people will say, oh, the Old Testament, it's all about kind of war and you know, God seems very kind of violent. And in the New Testament, actually, we see that you know, Jesus is all about peace and, and love. And it, it's totally different. This is a big contradiction. Um, and I guess for the sake of time, we are going to mention a podcast uh, episode that we always did a good thing to do. Yeah, we always love plugging the podcast. Um, 
called Is God a Moral Monster? So it's episode 15 of, of a podcast that Jim and I do together. So you can find that on the church website, which we give this kind of fuller treatment. But one of the questions we did receive from, from you guys was on this theme of kind of ethical contradictions within scripture. It's a slightly different question to the kind of Old Testament, New Testament one, and it's this. Let me just read it out here. Um, in Revelation 2, verses 4 to 16, the risen Christ tells a church to repent of eating food offered to idols and sexual sin as some Nicolaitans see it. However, Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 appears to say that we're free to eat food that has been offered to idols unless you are violating the conscience of a weak believer. How do you match up these two passages of Scripture? Well, I was talking to my brother Danny about this question, and uh, I should really just give him the microphone, but <laughs> he, he made the excellent point that we, we need to step back and see what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians. Um, now, this is my language, not Danny's, but if Paul had, had simply wanted to lay down rules, 1 Corinthians would be an extremely short book. Don't sleep around, don't be divisive, um, that sort of thing. But he goes to enormous lengths to get Christians to see why they should not do certain things. Because uh, he says in chapter 2, what he's about is trying to form the mind of Christ within them. And there are two foundational principles that we should apply to every ethical question if we want to have the mind of Christ. If I did this thing, would it damage somebody else? That's the first principle. And secondly, would I, being, would I be being disloyal to the Lord Jesus if I did this thing? Now, the questioner who sent in his question has already identified the first principle. You know, would it damage others? But Paul returns to the question of eating meat offered to idols, uh, I think it's in chapter 10. And, and uh, he, here he raises the issue of loyalty to Christ. He asks the Corinthians how the Lord feels when believers participate in sharing food offered to idols while also maintaining their involvement in church communion. And the analogy he gives is it's like a, a committing adultery and then returning home to your wife as if nothing had happened. So I think 1 Corinthians and Revelation both condemn eating meat offered to idols, but Paul is trying to get Christians to see why they should make certain ethical decisions, why he has a deeper objective than simply laying down rules. So there's no contradiction, it's just a different in tactics. Yeah, that's helpful. We also got a couple of questions about contradictions between the Bible and like false gospels. So like the gospel of Thomas, for example, is an example of a false gospel. Um, another questioner asked us about transmission errors that crept into manuscripts as they've been copied over the years. Uh, we don't have, again, we don't have time to kind of go into detail on all, all of those things, but we did another couple of episodes where we cover some of those things. Episode two and episode three of the Equip uh, podcast um, give kind of a, a detailed answer on some of those. Uh, and also feel free to come and, and, and chat with Jim or, or Danny afterwards. Um, or you. <laughs> or me. I'll, I'll just redirect you to Jim and Danny. Um, I want to finish off the Jim by uh, asking a couple of pastoral questions. And the first one that we got stated very simply, is it wrong to question the Bible? In many ways, I thought this was the most important question uh, that we received. Um, the short answer to that question is no. However, there is a wrong way to question the Bible. So, as a general principle, you should always surface your doubts. Remember that doubt is not the opposite of faith. Doubt is the opposite of certainty. And sometimes a Christian might encounter something that looks like a genuine problem within the Bible. Or sometimes a Christian who struggles with anxiety might torture themselves over how they feel about the Bible's trustworthiness. Now, neither of those types of doubt, what are called intellectual doubt or, or emotional doubt, neither of those types of doubt is sinful. But there is a sinful way to doubt, and that is 
if you want the Bible to have problems, if you want it to be wrong, if you want to find problems with it. Uh, and the technical term for that type of doubt is volitional doubt, or, and it is corrosive. I remember once sitting for hours beside a young man who professed to be saved, and he threw question after question at me, questions he had extracted from atheist websites and, and YouTube videos. And after a while, I realized he was actually getting frustrated with me because he couldn't find an issue that would allow him to reject his profession of faith. And so I told him to stop wasting my time. His problem wasn't intellectual. It was a matter of the will. And I suspect from the gentle and hesitant way in which the question was phrased that the questioner is struggling with genuine intellectual or emotional doubt. And that is not wrong. Okay, that is definitely not wrong. Surface your doubts. Come and talk to me or to somebody else about them. Don't bury them. That's a general principle in the Christian life. Uh, Christianity is rational. It is profoundly rational. So if you have a genuine issue, there should be an answer. Brilliant. No, that, that's so helpful. Um, the final question was from someone who is confused by the fact that Christians don't agree to use uh, one particular English translation of the Bible. So it was, why don't we just have one translation? <laughs> um, so many things I could say. <laughs> My brain is rejecting them all. Um, well, remember this series, we never claim the Bible translations are perfect or free from error. Um, I guess the important point, the grown-up point to make here is to make sure you have access to the best of contemporary scholarship. Uh, so in practical terms, that principle leads you either to the ESV or the NIV. Uh, I mean, I like both translations. I think the ESV uh, is stronger in its Old Testament work, perhaps. I think the NIV takes less liberties when translating a book like 1 Corinthians. But both translations are very good. Um, the, the important point from all this, um, just to just sort of take a step back from just to close up the whole series, I guess, is that an intelligent person in the 21st century can have a rational belief that the Bible is free from error. You don't have to accept it as a brute fact. We can be confident that when all the facts are known, the Bible as originally given will be uh, proven to be free from, actual, from factual error. We treat Scripture as Christ treated Scripture, as the inspired, holy, tr holy true, and authoritative Word of God. Thanks, Jim. Thanks so much for, for this series. It's been really helpful. Um, apologies if we didn't get to your question this morning. If you asked a question that we didn't cover, please do come and speak to, to myself or Jim afterwards, um, and we'd love to try and address that question more directly or more specifically in more detail. But thank you for coming along today and, and for, for joining in in this series. Um, it, it's been really good to have your participation. Let's just close with a word of prayer, and then we'll sing our final song. Heavenly Father, um, as we've been considering um, some of the alleged, uh, some of the criticisms of your, your word, the alleged contradictions, uh, Lord, our confidence has been built as we've seen how many of these just do not hold up to scrutiny of any kind. Uh, Lord, we thank you for um, giving us confidence over the course of this series that your word is true, that it is free from error. I just want to pray particularly for uh, the younger Christians here this morning, that you might strengthen them, um, strengthen their faith in a world where um, the, the Bible is, is repeatedly under attack, where they have confidence in it, confidence to hold to what is true. Uh, come what may. So, Father, we ask for your blessing, and we ask that what we have learned in the course of this series will stay with us uh, and build us up and ultimately help us to grow in our love for Christ. So, Father, we pray these things in his name. Amen.